Okay, um, we're going to get going. First, thank you all for coming to the UA Campus Bookstore. Um, I'm Rachel Epstein, the events coordinator, and um, just tell you a few words about parking before we get going. We have free parking for all bookstore events in the parking lot in front of the bookstore, in the parking lot behind Rasmussen Hall, and the parking lot next to the Wells Fargo Sports Center. So you do not have to pay for parking. Um, if you did not pay and parked in those areas and got a ticket, you just let me know and I'll take care of it. Errors, can, you know, mistakes can happen. Um, if you paid for parking, thank you. Next time you don't have to pay for parking. So that's the way it is. The bookstore closes at 7 o'clock. We have to be out of the front doors by 7. So please keep that in mind. We have some light refreshments on the tables. You're welcome to take. So um, right now I'd like to welcome Professor Elizabeth Dennison um, from our history department at UAA who will introduce our guest speaker. Uh, there will be time for a Q&A after the presentation. Thank you. Hello, I'm uh, Dr. Elizabeth Dennison from UAA, as Rachel said, and I'm um, very eager to hear what Dr. Erica Monahan has to say. Um, Dr. Monahan is an associate professor of history at the University of New Mexico and uh, a highly respected better than not be respected, Russian scholar, with a focus on Siberia, um, Siberian merchants, and uh, the Siberian networks and um, cultures. So the, the Wild East, we'll be hearing about, the Wild and Woolly East, and those merchants. And coming out of Erica's interest on um, Siberian merchant culture, her beautiful book came out. Where is your beautiful we book? We have some on the table. Uh, they're over there. And, um, the book is called The Merchants of Siberia, Trade in Early Modern Eurasian. It's uh, put out by Cornell University, and it just came out this year. Uh, Erica has also published some other um, works, including one of my favorites, Locating Rhubarb, Early Modernity's Relevant Obscurity, so I'm going to have to say something about rhubarb. Um, one of the books that I use in my medieval Russian history class, Erica is in, second, second semester, I'm using Portraits of Old Russia, which is a delightful work where scholars try to um, imagine through their sort of um, artistic creations of what life was like then. So that would be very interesting to hear more about that. Uh, so um, I'm hoping to hear a lot about Russian history. Siberian history, particularly in the merchants, but just a few other things to just know about Erica is that she's an awesome rock climber, so you can talk to her about rock climbing. Uh, she has um, some renown in the rock climbing world, <coughs> and she's uh, an intrepid soul and a wonderful colleague, and it's just a pleasure to have you here. So please help me welcome Erica. Thank you so much, Liz, for that wonderful introduction. I am really honored to be here. I want to thank Rachel for organizing and the UA Bookstore for hosting me. I would like to thank all of you for coming on this beautiful, sunny afternoon. It is, um, so people tell me that 17th century Siberian trade isn't necessarily number one on everyone's <laughs> list all the time. Go figure. Um, but so I'm just really honored and thankful that you made the effort to be here, and I will try and make it 
worth your while while I talk to you today about the merchants of Siberia. And my plan is to not talk for the whole time. I hope we do have a fun Q&A discussion. Um, and what I thought I would do is talk a bit about how I got into this project and then talk to you a little bit about some of the case studies that I deal with in the book, some of the merchants, some of the places I talk about. And along the way, try and point out the interventions as we talk, uh, talk about them in, as we call them in academia, some of the ways in which I like to think that this book that I've written contributes to how we understand Russia and the early modern world generally. I am by stock and trade an early modern specialist, which we generally define as kind of 1500 to 1800. And so Russia in the early modern period is, is my bread and butter. Let me put this on a bigger, um, excuse me, Display for Google. F5. F5. Thank you. <coughs> there we go. And, and I can. Advance. Thank you. This is um, this is a beautiful cover. I'll say it because I didn't have much to do with it. So feel free to judge this book by its cover. This this is one of the illustrations in the book, and it's taken from the Litsevoy Svod, which is a 16th century compendium that is full, full of thousands and thousands of illustrations, kind of maybe one of the first graphic novels that as far as anyone knows, just sat in an archive its whole life. It never, it was kind of dead in the water and people are starting to study it now, why these beautiful, beautiful illustrations weren't all that circulated. At any rate, one of, um, I, one of the over 1600 illustrations is this picture of a, a Bukharan embassy coming to the court of Ivan IV in the, in the 1580s, early 1580s. And I, this is one of the illustrations in the book that I chose because I wanted to point out that Russia's been trading long distance for a long time. It may sound banal, but I think it's important because one of the ways that one of the stereotypes about Russia that I've encountered again and again, and I like to think this book speaks against, is this idea that Russia was a completely isolated place, entirely isolated from Western Europe until Peter the Great came in the beginning of the 18th century and shed light on Russia. What I find is that's not at all the case. I'm not even the first person to say that. But so this illustration of trader, trader diplomats, and they were fellow travelers in the 16th century, so we don't need to try that hard to parse them. Um, we're, very, we're part and parcel of Russia's interactions with the world. I'll be saying more about that as we go along. So first let me talk a little bit about how I came to this project. As a high school student, I had the opportunity to go on a people-to-people -people exchange. It was 1991. The Soviet Union still existed. I went on this trip in July. I was fascinated by everything I saw. I didn't understand a word anyone said to me. And so I decided that when I went to college, I would study Russian. While I was in college, I went on an exchange program, and I got a little bit of a taste. But it wasn't quite enough. And when I finished college, I hadn't really thought too much about what I would do with my life down the road. I had been really into writing this honors history thesis about the medieval period in Europe. And <coughs> so I was looking around, and this Ukrainian emigre found me 
and he needed a kind of girl-next-door, English-speaking, happy face to be the front of the transport company that he was starting in Russia. And I was the sucker that signed up for it. <laughs> I, uh, so I lived in Russia from 1997 to 2000, working in this transport company, trying to do Russian business in the wild 90s. And believe me, you really do age in dog years in that period. <laughs> I, I have me to show for it. When I had been there three years, I pretty much was done with Russian business. But I was still interested in all things Russian. And so I figured that I would get, try my hand at studying history in graduate school. And so that's what I started doing. So I went to graduate school. Great. What will I study? Well, those years of being in Russia had made me somewhat interested in the history of business, this idea of capitalism. I was, after all, part of the shock troops that were going to bring capitalism to the post-Soviet world, right? It was all happening. I was part of an unfolding trajectory. What a different story that now it's really looking like a finite chapter closed as Russia is increased as, again, a, a very managed economy. At any rate, um, these were kind of some of the headlines, and this is from a long time ago and recently, that I just kind of clipped from the mostly New York Times that I think demonstrates the kind of troubled relationship we have with Russia and its capitalist trajectory or non-capitalist ways. Um, is, it, is Kremlin style a, a more raw face of capitalism? The faltering steps towards a free market? Capitalism <coughs> with a vengeance, um, to say nothing of you know, some of our champions of business divesting, ending up dead in even 2015 on American soil, um, a signs of a Russian thaw towards business. So this isn't saying anything except that there's a lot, there's a lot to get at in here. And I was pretty interested in better understanding the history of business, how, how they approached it, how we approached it. If there's one thing I've learned in all my um, study of history is we kind of redefine ourselves as a capitalist economy, but I defy anyone to show me a free market in anything but the pages of an Ayn Rand novel. And so the ways in which states and economies interact were very interesting to me. I also am interested in wide open spaces and borderlands and places where maybe no one has complete control. And so this led me to Siberia. And so when I began graduate school, I said, well, I will study merchants in Siberia and thus embarked. Now, how does one study merchants in Siberia in the early modern period? Even as one of the overarching arguments in my book is that we have overstated the differences between Russia and the West in the early modern period. Even as this is one of my positions that, that, I, um, that I hope that I'm advancing, there are real differences. And one of the major differences is the print record. In Russia, in the early modern period, we just don't have families like the Fugers founding their own archives, writing their own business histories centuries back, systematically saving their documents, or merchants writing memoirs of, of themselves. The very first one we have is from the 1780s. So if you want to study Russian history, Russian merchants, what are you left with? You're pretty much left with customs administrations records. 
usually thinking customs. Okay, I go through customs every time I cross an international border. Yes, yes. But in the early modern period, Russia had a customs post in nearly every town. And it wasn't unusual like this. This existed in the Ottoman Empire in Western Europe and in parts of Asia as well. What I think this speaks to is that in the pre-modern era, identity and lives for so many people was very much a local affair. We don't have the kind of nationalism that will come later. Life is local. And so for when a merchant went from one town to another, he registered at a customs post. He would declare who he was, who he was trading with, had it, where, where he's from, where <coughs> he's going, did you come on cart or camel or horse or boat or sledge? Had you paid taxes somewhere else? How much did you have with you? What did you have with you? Um, in varying levels of completion, these are the types of information that customs records hold. And so this is what I began to study. And if you had told me when I started graduate school that I would spend two years sitting in Siberian archives reading customs records, my answer would not have been no. It would have been hell no. <laughs> After all, the Russian customs administration was probably one of the central reasons I was leaving the business world of Russia, because this was one of the central challenges to getting things from A to B, which was my job, right? Um, it, this is the late 90s when all of my colleague, college graduating colleagues are engaged in the dot-com business, developing complicated software that we now refer to as apps. I had joined a startup company whose goal was to get things from A to B, which in Russia in the late 90s was more complicated than it should have been. And one of the reasons it was so complicated was Russian customs. Um, so uh, that kind of just uh, some themes I put up here. I think that we could talk about the history of capitalism. This is inextricable from the rise of the West and questions of Russian backwardness, um, and Russia's missing middle class. We'll get to all of these in a little bit. Big themes in, in Russian history. But let me, um, and also this question, what do we know about merchants in early modern Russia? I thought what I would do is kind of stay on this customs books thing for a minute and show you what I did. So I went to Siberia. And I basically focused on Western Siberia, just a little chunk of Siberia, which turned out to be very telling and helped me draw one of the main arguments <coughs> that I advance in the book. And that is that Russia's exploration and colonizing of Siberia is not just about fur extraction. It's not just about fur, it's very much about trade. Most of the cities, and I have different slides I could show you, most of the towns kind of congregate near the steppe. This is because there are connections that they are trying to develop with Central Asia and the, and the farther East Asia. Also, kind of, it just came to me one day, it's not all about fur because the Russian state collected fur tribute from natives. And that was kind of the, administratively, why sometimes it actually does pay to study institu institutional structures. And that's just the military governor who is going out and collecting fur tribute from the natives in often cruel and exploitive ways, despite what the Russian champions for a more benevolent Russian empire will tell you. But alongside that, they create this entire infrastructure 
of customs. They build it, they man it, and they waste and they spend a tremendous amount of paper and ink in order to keep track of the goods that are moving through Siberia. So that includes fur. There was, contrary to what you might read in some books, there was never a monopoly on fur at large. Um, fur was traded by merchants, as were textiles, lots and lots of textiles coming from Persia and India and the Far East. Lots of medical um, me medicines, such as rhubarb, which in the early modern world, it's not the stock, they're not making, they're not eating the stock until sugar is a widely available and inexpensive commodity, thank you to the Caribbean slave plantations that get developed, get going, and, um, and they really kind of come online big time in the 18th century. What they're trading rhubarb for is the root that has medicinal qualities of being a, a gentle purgative. Children and pregnant women can take it that doesn't kind of leave you purging at the end. It's got a nice not to get too gastrointestinal <laughs> on you all. But so apothecary books of the early modern period hail the, the powers and the benefits of rhubarb in their, it makes the top 10 list on a variety of, kind of herbals and things like that as a great medicine. And so it's, it's, a, it's a big commodity. Much of it is coming across Eurasia. And here I'll kind of jump ahead, little spoiler, one, another one of the arguments that I'm making is against the decline thesis. This is a, an argument in political economy that once Western companies, once the Westerners had the technology to cross seas and they organized trading companies, then that overland Eurasia trade really fell by the wayside because it just couldn't keep up with the technologically advanced Westerners. Well, rhubarb is, a, is an exception to that. Um, Jesuits write about it, and according to the prices of rhubarb in apothecaries in Amsterdam and um, Luxembourg, the rhubarb that comes over land is more prized, it's more expensive, because people thought it got too damp to work that well when it went by ocean. Right? So just one clue that maybe that decline thesis about overland, tra uh, overland trade really falling by the wayside and, <coughs> and Eurasia just giving way to fragmentary, tribal, dictatorial conditions that persist today, a la Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, etc., um, might not be the whole story. Stay tuned, I've got another example to, to build that case as well. Um, but so here we are out in Sa Western Siberia, reading Western Western customs books helps me see that it's not all about fur, that they're trading lots of things. They're interested in building connections with Central Asia. Um, and those connections have existed for a long time. Here is a much less technologically advanced map of Siberia made in the 17th century. It's one of the first maps that we um, have in Siberia. And just one thing I, I like to point out is you can't escape in this map all the rivers, the rivers and the lakes. And that's because that's pretty much how travel, how travel went. Rivers to portages to more rivers. Travel in the winter was easier. You didn't have, um, you didn't have the mud, the thickets. In Alaska, this probably isn't such a hard case to make to people. If you just stayed warm, you could move a lot faster in your sledge if not along the river, because sometimes the ice would be too bumpy if it was smooth, great, or alongside rivers. So most of the, tra most of the travel 
is happening in the winter. And I have all these notes from, or sometimes, you know, you see merchants writing back a note saying, these guys are trying to hustle me out of, hustle me out of a bribe because they know they're just telling me they need more paperwork, but they know I'm going to miss the season and then my things are going to sit here and rot. I'm not going to make it to markets in the spring and then I lose a year. Um, and so there's that kind of a sense of urgency. Um, and, and I get that because when I worked with Russian customs, it was the people that imported produce in restaurants that, are, that were paying the biggest bribes because they couldn't afford to wait it out at the customs because their, their goods are going to go to rot. And so I wondered, I remember the first time I went and had tea in the Soviet Union, I could not have imagined that a biscuit on Main Street in Moscow would ever cost more than a couple of kopecks. Pardon? And now, yes, and now that it could cost $5. So, yeah, historians, more about the past, not the future, because I could never, I couldn't have predicted that that would be the case. But a big reason is because of the corruption at borders and how produce, they got you. They get you on the hook. So here's a map of the city, of the towns that I focused on in Western Siberia. It's a slightly different projection. Um, kind of to come clean. I didn't read all the customs books in Siberia, although it, at some point it occurred to me that to have a really robust analysis, maybe I should. And then someone said, you know, you probably only have so many decades. Um, here's, here's another look at it. And this is, I'm going to show you this later. This Lake Yamish is going to come, come back into our story. Um, Here's a picture of customs books and that I, that I described, these records of who came on what day. And so if, if there's Russian speakers in the audience, you may be thinking, that's not the Russian I know. And that's because this is 17th, yes, this is 17th century Chancellery Russian. And the Russian alphabet develops over centuries from when Cyril and Methodius in the 9th century start to try and um, kind of go listen to Slavs and write down a language for them so they can translate texts and convert them to Christianity. And then through the century, it develops and develops. And in the 17th century, it still has a lot of omegas and alphas and Greek letters in it. I was once reading a microfilm of the customs books in a library in, at, at the outskirts of Moscow. And the Russian librarian actually came up and asked me if I was reading music. So that's just how foreign this, um, this text can look even to native Russian speakers, um, which is also by way of excuse for why it took me so long to get the book done. Um, and here's other, this is an early 18th century variation, and here is a, there's only two of these. Um, here's a very rare case of a merchant's notebook. Um, these, these big merchants that I study, they have networks of maybe 200 agents that are working for them, and they are, t they are handing things off in the field. They are manning these customs posts. They're um, selling things at local shops where, you know, it's not just long-distance trade. A lot of it is raisins and nuts and, and hides and, and all kinds of livestock from Central Asia that's also being sold in local towns. And they're, so they're storing things in warehouse, they're working these shops, they're handing things off, and, so, and, they're, and the ones that are more important, um, the bigger, there's, there's kind of a hierarchy of agents, are keeping track of all kinds of, um, you know, in books, out books, and, and revenue. These are very, very rare, but we know not many of them survive because no one seems to have been all that interested in systematically archiving them, but they get referred to enough that we know they did exist. Although, um, Again, the, the paper trail is never as, 
as sufficient as I, as I would have liked. Back to that, how do you learn about Russian merchants? Um, this is an aerial view of Tobolsk, the city that I worked in. It was founded in the 1580s. It's the second town founded by the Russian-ish conqueror Yermak, um, and it becomes the capital of Siberia, and it's a big, important town until in the 19th century they put the railroad through Tumen, a little bit south of that, and it kind of is the reason that Tobolsk has remained this kind of museum-ish town, and it's a really beautiful place to work. The archive was actually in the, um, in the walls of this early 18th century monas um, monastery, and it housed government buildings. Now, Tobolsk, I want to point out from this picture, is up on this high hill, and here is the Ob River coming through. The Urchis, just a little bit south, runs into it. It's on top of this hill, and at the bottom of this hill was the neighborhood where Buharan merchants lived. Liz brought up Buharan merchants, um, and that I have this other piece about them. Bukhara was a city in Central Asia, and um, around it was we, the Bukharan Hanit, which you could, I kind of think of as a statelet, a polity of sorts, that is one of the successor states of Genghis Khan after the Mongol horde comes through. Pretty quickly, the Mongol horde breaks up, but this, um, this idea of succession and a connection to Genghis Khan is a powerful principle of rulership in Central Asia for uh, quite a while to come. And the Bukharan Hanit is in that family. There are Central Asians in the, um, well, it was a long process between the 11th to early 14th century when Bukhara converts um, full stop to <coughs> Islam. But by the time I encounter these merchants, they are, they're Muslims, and they come and they live in the Russian Empire. And I'll say more about them in a, in a minute. But they, in, in Tobolsk, they lived down here in this neighborhood. Um, and, I'll, and I actually will just tell you one story now because you have a visual for it. So one of the main arguments I make in this book is that, you know, the empire can say one thing at the center, but out in the periphery, it's kind of a different deal. And the empire, and this is, um, you know, scholars are nodding their heads, of course. You know, they, empires never seem to really hold the power to which they pretend. And here's an example. So all the trade was supposed to happen in the government trading place that happens up here. But everyone sort of knows that the Buharans just have their own little marketplace down here, and they're selling things all the time, and they're not paying all the taxes. So the Russian merchants in the town feel quite disadvantaged, and they tell on the Bukharans. And the center in Moscow writes letters saying, get those Bukharans, get those Bukharans to sell their goods only in the upper town. And the Bukharans write back and say, you know what? That slope, it's either muddy or it's icy, and we can't really get our things up and down there, so that doesn't work for us. Okay, so this is kind of the autocratic, brutal czar, what his Bukharans are telling him. And the czar says, Okay, we'll build, a, we'll build a state customs post down in the lower town for you, right? So this, to me, is an example of kind of empire at the periphery is a whole lot more accommodating than it pretended to be. So um, here's, one of, um, here's another picture of Tobolsk, which I love this map. Um, this is from, I love this map so much that this might be kind of my next project or the working on the person that made this map. This is a mistake. 
because this is actually supposed to be the Erdős River, and this is the Tobol River, um, and they mislabeled it in this edition of the map. Um, here's another map of Tobolsk, and in here, in red, I have this is the this is the central trading square, um, and these are the the big walls that I just showed you in that picture. And right down here, with the magnifying glass, you can read. This is the Buharan, the Buharan neighborhood, and their trading their trading places. So the Russian state not only knows that they're there, it's delighted that they're there. From the very first charter to the Stroganov merchant families in 1558, official state documents say. If there are Central Asians there, be nice to them. We want them to come. We want their goods. And only once they live there and have regular networks moving back and forth, well established, then they try and roll back those privileges, privileges and tax them, which I find is, is pretty, um, is a standard move from the playbook of the Russian state. First, they want to get them there. Then, bit by bit, they'll try and generate revenue. This is actually, a, this is after all, a state hugely animated by mercantilistic principles, which means it wants to gather as much specie as it can to itself. But there's another reason it really wants these Bukharan merchants there, and that reason is that as it's busting out and <coughs> spreading and kind of claiming Siberia and the people that are there, and I say people because it seems like in the 17th century, the Russian state isn't all that interested in claiming territory. What they want is people. They want to add names to their lists of tribute players from whom they can collect fur. And it's really only in the 18th century that we start to see Peter wanting territory for territory's sake, because you can color a whole map of Russia, and it's impressive when you have these diplomatic meetings. Um, simplistic it may sound, but I think that's part of the equation. But in the 17th century, we don't really see this interest in territory for territory's sake. We want people. And so as Russia, Russia is trying to kind of set itself up and get these tribute payers, it sends out a brigade, it has them build a fort, but it can't get all the supplies there. It knows that merchants can kind of fill that gap for it. So I, I kind of talk about this as it's instrumentalist. This is not a Russian empire that appreciates diversity for diversity's sake in the sense that an office for student life in the 21st century does just kind of accepts as a principle that diversity is a good thing. This is an instrumentalist approach to diversity and, and a realistic one. Um, the Russian state is trying to do a lot with a little and it recognizes that there are different people under its purview. By definition, an empire is an authority that kind of spreads, it has power over a variety of people. And it is not interested in um, thought policing, any, anyone except Orthodox, actually. And we have lots of examples of this. I encounter an embassy where you have a Lamaist going to a Mongol camp on the way set, telling his Russian leaders, you know, the spirit has moved me. I would like to convert to orthodoxy. And they write back to Moscow saying, he, he would like to convert to orthodoxy. And Moscow writes back, no way. That's going to undermine our negotiations. He's Lamaist. He stays Lamaist for the, for the duration of this trip. Um, that's sort of how I see the Russian state rolling in Siberia in the 17th century. Um, and here's just a picture of a sable to show that it is not all about fur. In addition, um, although you would get that impression, this is a famous picture. Um, this is a famous picture that here I've just clipped from the front of a Russian textbook. And it shows kind of Russian diplomats and diplomat slash merchants 
on an embassy to the um, Emperor Maximilian of the Holy Roman Emperor in 1576, bringing these famous sable forties, um, forty sables um, gathered together inside out and presenting it. Well, and one of the pictures in the book is, um, <coughs> that, I, that I don't have right here, one of the pictures in the book is the other three panels in this show other merchants following behind with all variety of textiles, textiles. And so when I saw this, it's a great illustration of, yes, they're getting fur there, but Russia is not not all about fur. It's getting all kinds of other commodities. What, are, what else is it getting? It's getting China. It's getting medicinal things. This is a picture right here. Oops, pardon. It's getting rhubarb. It's getting rhubarb and silkworms. <laughs> and, um, and also, I should put, you know, raisins and dried fruit and and Scott, forgive me, which is livestock, goats, and even probably more goats than horses, although God bless the soul that wants to count those in customs post records. Um, so I've talked about my, about, about my method, kind of inserted some of my findings. Let me come back to what I started out doing. I started out trying to count these merchants. So who am I going to count? I had to answer this question, and I said merchants. Well, right off the bat, I have to come clean and say, this won't tell me everything I need to know or want to know about the economy in early modern Russia because Cossacks come to the trading post, natives come to the trading post, peasants and soldiers and even rarely an official come to the trading post. Everyone's trading. But you have to stop, start somewhere and we seem to know so little enough about merchants that it seemed a worthy goal to just focus in on the merchants. And so I focused in on privileged merchants. So what does that mean? That has a particular meaning in Russia. In Russia, there are kind of, there were three tiers of merchants. The highest, the first top tier were called gosti. Um, and gosti, there were only about 30, maybe 45 at one strange moment, but there's about 30 at the time. It's a very exclusive status. You get a piece of paper from the czar saying you are a merchant. And because you're a merchant, you can brew your own homebrew, you can not be taxed with the little townspeople, you can, um, you cannot have soldiers quartered. But, and beyond those three things, there's kind of, it's a pretty ad hoc um, delegation of privileges. They do, however, pay taxes. They may not pay taxes as a townsperson on the house they live in in Moscow, but they pay taxes all the time at customs posts on the goods they're moving through, thankfully for me, because that helps me see them um, and be written, written into the state. Um, the second tier merchants, similar privileges, but a little less exclusive, and there's probably two or 300 of them at any time. And so, um, and then there's one a third group that in the 1680s seems to just get folded into the second group. And so these are two of the groups that I follow, Gosti, and Gastini Sokni, for all my years of thinking about this, I, I haven't really come up with an elegant translation. Gastini Sokni means merchant hundred. And kind of in the, you know, we, you know that kind of Roman centurios were um, organized on kind of groups of a hundred people or neighborhoods of a hundred people. In Russia, some of the taxation was, in, was organized on the hundred concept as well. And I think that's where it comes from, but it's not all that explanatory. But that's what they're called, Gastini Sotni. And then the third group of merchants that I, I really focused in on were these Central Asian Muslims. And that, um, and that kind of lent itself to the structure of the book. 
if in my dissertation I was just trying to count them and I counted 16 ghosti that are operating in Russia, which is a bit more than half of them, and from the second tier merchants, I counted 54 of them that are operating in Siberia in the period, in the century or half or so that I'm, that I'm looking at. And that is, um, you know, maybe a quarter to a third of them, a little bit less, but a good chunk. And, and I wrote this all up, and it was, charitably put, dense. So then, once you finish your dissertation, you have to think about, you know, how can I tell a story that might be more interesting to pe for people to actually read? And so I chose just a couple of the families that I felt like I had traction on. And then my method totally changed. Instead of being kind of systematic reader of customs books, then I'm just an omnivorous detective, wherever, however I can, trying to learn anything that I might about these other families and put together the stories that I can from that. And so the um, kind of three chapters in the book that are focused on merchants are the result of that. I want to even point out to any future graduate students in the room that it could have been other merchants as well. You know, once I had sort of counted them there, there was so much more that appeared to me. Um, but so in the, in the book, I focus on this one family, this elite family of Gosti called the Filatifs. And then I focus on this Bukharan family called the Shababins. And then I focus on um, not exactly three, but what I want to talk about today is I focus on this one family that actually wasn't in the Gastini Sotni, but just below. But I couldn't not talk about them because I see this family for over a century and a half. They never rise into the ranks of the privileged merchants, but nor do they ever fall out of the ranks. And people that study families, you know, just how long does a family last, would say, and, and some things scholars did say, is that Russia never really had successful merchant dynasties. They kind of disappear after, after three generations. Well, all of the families that I preview, you know, I can show you them for half a dozen generations. And even this family that supposedly is no one, I see for well over seven generations, which to me says, you know, we kind of closed the book a little early maybe on saying there was no, there was no middle class in Russia. That, you know, you have this kind of humble craft trading family that's surviving all this time. Okay, so here is, and I sort of tell you, so after my dissertation and just trying to count, <coughs> then I tried to tell stories of these families. And this is what I learned about the Filatov families. Um, the Filatov family, my most elite ghosti, and I see them through what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven generations of merchants. Three gen they appear to me first in the 1620s. They're trading fur, getting it from Siberia, sending it up to Archangel, this, this um, town in, Russia, in the north of Russia where the Dutch and British are really duking it out about having the carry trade for Russia. Um, and this provides lots of opportunities for people in the north, and that's how they kind of get their start. But by the middle of the century, when their first merchant, Astafi, reaches into the pinnacle of the merchant ranks, he's diversified. He's trading in Sweden, he's sending agents to the Caucasus, to Persia, he's all over Siberia, probably into Lubeck, but that, that western overland trade through Poland, etc., is really hard to keep track of because those lines are probably so old and so little regulated. And then, by the 1670s, the Filatovs are pioneering direct trade with China. This is something Russians hadn't done yet. 
they didn't really need to because there were all these Central Asian networks that had existed there for so long. But in the 1670s, the Philatives are pioneers in kind of going, it, going, going their own way through the Gobi Desert. In 1674, they send a, send a caravan that crosses directly through the Gobi Desert, and this is kind of you know, a sound barrier of sorts in that people thought it was haunted with monsters and ghouls and all kinds of um, things that might make it impassable. And then the Philatives send a caravan through it, led by a man named Gavril Romanovich Nikitin, who himself goes on to become a really big deal in the Russian merchant class. And this, um, in case you haven't been totally up on the Russian merchant historic historiography, is another really important point in how we understand Russia. Because scholars have been telling us for so long that Russian merchants, they're, they're really defective capitalists. <coughs> they're averse to risk-taking. They're just sycophants to the government. They don't understand the importance of growing an, an economy. They just quash those around them. And so here you have the philatives who, and, oh, and they're not really capable of the complex, sophisticated organization that's required in long-distance maritime trade by um, long-distance maritime trade of a big trading company. Well, I think the philatives kind of undermine every single one of those premises. Beijing is farther from Moscow than London is from Venice by a lot. Organizing a caravan to move over all kinds of um, biomes in different seasons is anything but a small, petty matter. They're innovating new routes to try and trade directly with China, and we see them as the incubator of the career of someone who is not re related to them. I mean, nepotism reigns supreme in the early modern world, even still. <laughs> um, but, but here they're incubating the career of a really a guy who becomes a really big deal, just that he does a good job for him. So, you know, we start to turn back the cover, take back the, um, you know, look under the hood of all these things we thought we understood about Russian merchants for all this time, and it seems to be not at all the case. Let me pause here and kind of ask this question. So why, like, why did we misunderstand Russian merchants so much, if, if we have? And why have we misunderstood them, and why is it important? I submit to you, we've misunderstood them because of Marxism and the Soviet, and, and the legacies and implications of the Soviet Union. And what I mean by that is this. History as a formal profession really only gets established in the 19th century. At this point, Marx is already writing. Mark, Karl Marx, who dies in 1883, is just one of many socialist thinkers who, are observe, who have observed the French Revolution and entertained this idea of um, equality and fraternity, who have watched the Industrial Revolution and the horrors of tightly packed labor workers, and who are part and parcel and observers of the revolutions of 1848. So socialist th thinkers are everywhere. Well, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But <coughs> Russian intellectuals only get to hear about Marx. And that, I think, is one of this, these fun, funny idiosyncratic moments in history. Marx writes Das Kapital in 1867. Tsar Alexander II is the greatest Tsar, Tsarist reformer of the 19th century, perhaps of all, night, of all time. He's lightened um, censorship a bit, but there's still censors. The censors, two of them, they get their copy of Das Kapital, and they read it, and censor one writes, 
you know, this is strictly economic history. Industrial does not apply to Russia, um, so it's okay. And censor number two writes, this is, you know, purely theoretical. Few will read it, and even fewer will understand it. We've got nothing to worry about. So Marx, so Russian is the first language into which Das Kapital is translated. And in 1872, there's, there, it's the only socialist text that Russian intellectuals can read. Um, so no, you know, Saint Simon, et cetera, isn't getting, making his way. Not that it would have been a different outcome anyway. But so the first professional historians are quite sympathetic to socialist ideas. And they understand that they don't quite want to throw in their lot with celebrating the exploiting classes, you know, the rich merchants. Once the Russian Revolution happens, it's no longer a preference, it's an imperative. You can get in real trouble for writing about merchants. What a good Marxist historian does is identify peasant revolts in time in order to see where on a universal Hegelian spectrum of history you're located to know when you're going to overthrow the state or exploiting class. That's what a Marxist historian does, and it could be quite dangerous or toxic to seem to be too interested in celebrating the, um, merchant, the merchants of Russia. And so merchants get pretty much left alone. 1991 comes along, and for me, it's pretty low-hanging fruit, to be perfectly honest. But here's the kicker that has really fascinated me, is that, so it turns out we don't know all that much about Russian merchants, even as early modern history is just a celebration of the development of commerce and commercial culture, the rise of the West, the history of capitalism, require these types of histories. But we just sort of have a blank spot over here in Russia, which is all the more amazing, the kicker I was talking about, in that when the Russian Revolution happened, we were intensely interested in understanding just what happened. How did they have that <coughs> socialist revolution? And so we committed all kinds of resources to understanding it. And one of the big reasons that um, following one of the most prominent Russian historians in the second half of the 20th century that we explained it by was the missing middle class. This was a theory most prominently put forward by Polish emigre cum Harvard professor Richard Pipes, who was called in to advise the Reagan White House on policy towards Russia in the Cold War. And his proposed argument was that one of the reasons this revolution happened is because you didn't have a middle class with its private property and sufficient assets and a sense of pride to stand up and fight against those vicious Bolsheviks. And this has become part and parcel of our understanding of the Russian Revolution. And yet, when you pull back the cover, this is a premise un undocumented empirically um, in large part. So for me, this, this is pretty fascinating. In the 90s have been um, a, a great moment to start to look anew at Russian history. And it doesn't only matter for it doesn't only matter for Russian history and how we understand the Russian Empire, Imperial Russia, maybe its implications for the Soviet Union. I think it matters as well in how we understand the whole early modern period. In um, in, in kind of the generation in which I've come as age as a as a historian, connectivity is the name of the game. Um, we are so interested in how the world has been connected. And there's real different camps, I'm going to be super simplistic here, but you've got those camps 
um, from a more Western European, how did, how did Western Europe become so great, the triumphalist narratives? Was it superior government or the crucible of competition on that, that little corner of Northwestern Europe? Superior intelligence, wonderful innovations, you know, the need to cross oceans that drove technology. Um, that's one camp. And then you have this other camp, um, often identified as subaltern studies, that looks at the ways in which the West wasn't so glorious. In the Indian Ocean, for example, they totally misspoke by like a century and a half um, when Western trading companies really made um, hegemonic headway into trade networks that already existed in the Indian Ocean. At, in Latin America, there's been much more attention paid to the ways in which people that didn't write things down and have a voice have been, um, have suffered at the hands of the West. So there's kind of these competing camps from different parts of the world. And yet, in most of these narratives, Russia is completely left out. It's just not there. Um, and this 20th century isolation, you know, Marxist historians, they have to do their Marxist thing. I mean, at some level, Western historians are, are um, wrapped up in their own nationalist narratives as well. But Russia, this fulcrum between Europe and Asia, just doesn't really pay, play much of a role in these narratives at all. So that's another way in which I like to think that um, what I've done is a bit of low-hanging fruit. Um, so let me, I don't want to talk forever, so I'm going to skip ahead to my um, the case study about a place that I think makes a useful intervention. And then, if you'd like, I will come back and I can talk a little bit about these Muslim merchants that I've, I've followed from, from when they get land in 1657 to the 1780s, um, and, and that they're just there in Siberia doing their thing, having privileges, um, not converting, sometimes working for the state, um, and, and I think illustrate this very different view of an accommodating Russian empire. Um, but while I'm talking about this, these kind of big global things, so why does it matter, Russia in the early modern period, let me come back to just a tiny little piece of research. This is a, this is a picture of a beautiful church that the Philatifs built in downtown Moscow. Um, this is a uh, family tree of the Shababins. Oh, we can come back to that. That's their property record. More maps. The Naritsins. And then, while I was doing my research, this place, Lake Yamish, keeps appearing. And I see it, I see it, I see it. I finish my dissertation, and then I can stop and breathe. And I started, and I said to myself, you know, I have no idea what that place really is, or even where it is, and I'd like to know more about it. And, in the, and this, I think, is when being a historian is the most fun, when you just really have a concrete question that you're after. And so I started to try and follow up Lake Yamish any which way I could. Lake Yamish is now in northwestern Kazakhstan. The closest big city to it is Pavlodar. And it is this salt lake that, as far as I know, is never really discovered. That it's called Yamish suggests um, um, a Mongol-Turkic route, that the, that the Mongols had a postal stations along the way to move things really fast across Eurasia that were called Yams. And Yamish um, very well may have been one of these places. It was a salt lake known from the 16th century for its high quality of salt. And when the Russians settle Tara, which is the most southern 
empire, uh, this most southern town on their empire for. They settle it in 1594, and they don't move beyond it till 1718. Um, yeah, the nomads really had the step for a long time. Um, but they settle Tar in 1594, and they immediately start sending brigades to collect salt from this lake. In the days of pre-refrigeration, even in Siberia, you needed to salt your meat and salt your fish. So salt supplies were super important. As they do this, um, trading starts to develop. And in this wonderful, um, trading starts to develop that, that I kind of think of as, you know, what we're seeing here is a northern extension of what's called the Silk Roads. The Silk Roads, always a misnomer of sorts. Um, there was never just one, there were lots of them. It wasn't also linear from you know, Beijing to Aleppo or Gibraltar, um, but lots and lots of swirling movement across this vast expanse. And you see this swirling movement up in Siberia as well. And Lake Yamish was part of that. And across the 17th century, um, it develops as a trading post. This is one of my favorite illustrations from the book. And this is from um, the mapmaker Simeon um, Remizov, who the lake is described as kind of having a kind of raspberry hue to it. And it was so pure, the salt would just form crusty on the lake bottom. And the Russian soldiers would go, and they would just take pikes and just kind of break off pieces and put it into carts and bring it back to this makeshift fort that they would have. This is, you know, all fair in trade and war. Basically, the Russians would show up, and so would the Kalmaks. And they would have all sorts of livestock. And there would be this kind of tremendously tense three weeks in which both sides, sometimes they take hostages immediately, like you pull any funny stuff and we're killing your guy and vice versa. And they would point ca ca cannons at each other. Sometimes they would shoot each other. And amidst this, they would actually trade with each other in livestock and other goods. And merchants get wind of this, and they start coming, <coughs> coming to this place. And over the course of the 17th century, it gets bigger and bigger, such that the Russian state gets wind of it. These are kind of people trading in a borderless place. You know, oh, we can avoid taxes out there. They start sending their own customs officers there to say, hey, we're here to collect some taxes. They don't always make it because sometimes, you know, Kalmyks block their way or whatnot. But so here in this story of Lake Yamish, we have a story of a market that's growing across the course of the 17th century. It is growing in pre at precisely the time that the traditional historiography has told us since the 1970s, assured us with such confidence that Eurasian trade is just dying because of the superiority of Western maritime organizations. And so this is just kind of when you start looking into it, we find that isn't quite the case. And it really, so I think that one of the take home points, and maybe this is a good place to start, is that we have so much more to know about Eurasia in the early modern period if we can kind of take away the things we think we knew that were based more on, on premises and maybe cultural values than empirical evidence. So thank you, and I'm happy to take any questions. <laughs> First of all, um, do you think that maybe the fact that during the 18th century, after Peter the Great had authorized the Great Northern Expedition, the policy was not to publicize 
what the people that he sent across the wilds of Siberia found, that that contributed to the Western misperception of what was there. Second uh, comment I would have is that uh, I'm in the process of translating Steller, Georg Wilhelm, uh, his uh, description of Irkutsk and his diary from Irkutsk to Kamchatka. And it was a very frustrating uh, but also educational uh, undertaking. We read a lot about Kiachta and the trade with the Chinese and the rhubarb monopoly. And so I'm looking forward to reading your book and maybe filling in uh, some holes. Um, I take it you focused on the 17th century and, and don't go beyond. A bit, yes. Um, thank you for these wonderful comments, by the way. That is, um, you know, this first suggestion that the deliberate secrecy of geographical knowledge might have contributed inadvertently to these blank spots about what we understand about Eurasia, I think is a great comment that I actually, I mean, I have been aware of both and haven't really put them together, so thank you. Um, that's really something to think about some more. Um, and the, my chronology, <laughs> like not since my dissertation defense. Yes, I more focus on the 17th century, but then where I can follow my families farther, I do. Um, like I see the Shababin, these Baharan families into the 1780s in Catherinian Russia, where I have a little bit of an opportunity to see how after, um, you know, Peter the Great, well, let me not make flippant comments about Peter the Great's um, <laughs> attitude about religion. I mean, he is the first czar to have the Quran translated into uh, Russian, but he also seems to care more about revenue than, than religion. Um, but after him, under his daughter, things get really bad for Muslims. And then in, um, under Elisabetta from 1642 to 62, and then with Catherine, they get better. And I see these Bukharians kind of, well, actually, I don't see them. They kind of get quiet for, for me throughout the 1740s. And then in Catherineian Russia, they start filing petitions about all the slaves that have run away and been con and converted to Christianity without following the state protocol because it turns out the orthodox Russian state, I think, in an effort not to antagonize its Muslim residents, makes rules about a 30-day waiting point period for any householder. You know, we also think there wasn't serfs in Siberia, but there's household dependents and slaves, or and sometimes they're called this Russian word we use for serfs, trepasmi. Um, the Russian state imposes a 30-day waiting period because it doesn't want to antagonize the Muslims. Again, this is Orthodox Russian, the Orthodox Russian state again saying they can't become Christian because they're the property of that Muslim and a Christian can't be the property of a Muslim. So I do um, kind of opportunistically follow the story into Catherinean Russia, but, but to be fair, the documentation explodes in the 17 teens and I haven't <coughs> followed it as systematically as I do earlier in my story. And um, so that is something people can call me out on for sure. I have one, one question. Um, uh, we had a lot of trouble with the Gostini war, 
um, which Stella uses because, well, there's apparently no satisfactory German translation of it in, in his um, uh, perception. And so it took us a while to get some kind of an image. I take it that's it's sort of like a bazaar. And uh, so how many, I mean, I found it interesting that you say the top group of merchants are the Gosti. And then you call the others the Gostinoi Slotni. Uh, obviously, those are the people who, who do their business at the Gostini Dwarf, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. And this is a wonderful point. In the 17th century, you see the word bazaar. And then the is Jarmark is a word of German um, derivation. You see that in Petrine Russian co coming in more, even into Siberian documents. So you see them both. The, um, but so the Gestini Dvor is this Russian word, and it's, it's both the marketplace. In most Siberian towns, it is the place where there's the building where the custom officer sits. And in, in, depending on how big it is, it will also be a place where you have, they rent stalls, and you can even rent it by the shelf or the whole stall, which is like a little shop. Um, and there's places to water your horses, and there's <coughs> warehouses for your goods, and up above, there's, there, in some fancy ones, can even be apartments for visiting merchants to stay in. And so it, I, I think it almost is a, more akin to this caravanserai, uh, that oasis throughout Central Asia, the um, at, at um, oasis throughout Central Asia, this is kind of standard. You know, you can only go so far, and then you need to rewater at a place. And this is how caravans moved, and they got bigger as they moved. But um, this um, uh, the late historian Remy Constable, she also writes about these in the Ottoman Empire, and there's even kind of analogs in Southern Europe as well. So it's a it's a you know, just exactly what is it akin to is a good question that, that I don't feel like I have a perfect answer to. Thank you. But, um, and I would love to read your um, translation of Steller. He's one of my favorite, you know, disappointed enthusiasts. Well, give me your email and I'll send it to you uh, when we are done. Thank you. Um, so, here in Alaska, the Russian missions which um, converted Portions of the population of Aleuts, Yupiks, and other Alaskan Native groups are considered by many um, historians and other interested parties in the states to have been considered a great success. Not only in the sense that visitors can be converted under Russian missions in the you know, 18th, 19th centuries, but also the fact that um, traditional culture, languages, and um, other aspects of life were um, not hindered or were hindered to lesser extents than we would see by the American missionary activity here by people such as Jeff. At that point, though, this is off, that's obviously past your era. Um, but at this point, as Russia begins to move in and begins to interact with other people, how does the state begin to take an interest in missionary activity, and how does it sort of evolve? Interact, not just interacting with the most interested in the region, but also with native populations in some areas. Oh, 
Okay, the short answer is, in the 17th century, the Russian state is not supportive of missionary activities in Siberia. It does, it is interested in creating orthodox sacred space, and in this book, um, Cartographies, Cartographies of Tsardom by Val Kibbelson, she talks about that. They want to say, this is orthodox space, whenever they build, they conquer a place, what goes up? A fence, a church, a marketplace, simultaneously. They send soldiers to build churches from one place to the other. So they understand themselves to be orthodox. It is important to them to create an orthodox world. But they are not interested in converting natives at first. Maybe it's just a sense of, you know, we don't have the resources of that, a sort of pragmatic approach. Um, there's a 1657 letter from Tsar Alexei Mihailovich to the Chinese emperor saying, and I am Tsar over all these different people of different faiths. For me, this is one of the earliest mentions I see of, of an, if you will, embrace of some sort of diversity. So the Russian state is not interested in converting them. Even two more examples that I skipped over with these Bukharans I studied. Um, the two times, in the 1650s and then in the 1680s, you have some high church officials <coughs> and they write to Moscow complaining, they say, this is horrendous. We've got Christians and Muslims living right by each other. This is unconscionable. And the fact that it's just a high church official writing this 30 years later suggests to me that no one else really cares about it all that much. And even the, in 1700 or 1701, again, you have a high church official saying, um, you, lodging some complaints, saying the call to prayer is disturbing the, the orthodox, orthodox prayers. They have their prayers on fast days. They don't take off their hats when uh, orthodox processions are going around the church on feast days. This is horrible. You've got to do something about it. And Moscow writes back and says, do not antagonize these populations. Yes, the mosque may be close to the church. <coughs> Fires are a wonderful opportunity to maybe put it a little bit farther as they occur, and in Siberia they always do, but do not antagonize this population. And I just think that is so such a fantastic example of the, of the state kind of recognizing its limits. Another example in Tara, around the same time at the turn of the century, you have the Bukharan merchants in Moslem in Tara get together and they write a letter saying, Dear Tsar, we have pooled our money, we Bukharan merchants have pooled our money, we have bought a clock that works and we would like to ask you to have to fund a clockmaker to keep to keep the clock running so that we can keep track of our affairs. Now to me, when Muslims are saying to the Tsar we need to keep track of our daily affairs, I'm inferring that they're talking about the call to prayer. And I don't have an answer to this document. But to my mind, even that they would feel comfortable enough to ask, you know, the Orthodox Tsar to fund the clockkeeper so they could keep track of the call to prayer, says something again about the accommodation of um, the Russian Empire in the 17th century. Peter, a little bit ironically, because he's more interested in civilization, Yuri Slozkin argued, than religion, um, does start to up conversion a little bit. And then Elizabeth, Elizabeth Petrovna is, um, if you will, horrible to Muslims. Yeah. Over 75 mosques are burnt in Siberia and hundreds throughout the Russian Empire. And then Catherine comes along and is ex more interested in being explicitly tolerant. Um, I had a question 
about uh, fur. Um, you kind of pricked my balloon a little bit. I always thought that fur was uh, the driver sort of out in that part of the world. I mean, knowing that there's other trade, but like what percentage of the trade in that part of the world was r related to fur? I mean, I, I thought that, you know, because it was important, they, all, they were always hunting it out and having to move to find more territory. This is a great question. Um, the short, I can't tell you exactly. And when I was doing my research, I, my kind of take was, I'm not going to be an ec economic historian. I'm a social historian. I'm going to study these merchants, and then I'm going to go to the library, and I'm going to read all this economic history that other number crunchers have prepared for me. And then I'm going to be able to do a wonderful job of contextualizing my work. And when I went to the library to really try and find that economic history, I was, I was really disbelieving. I, you know, I'm like an advanced graduate student thinking, my library skills are really not what they should be because they can't find all the economic history about um, Siberia. And so one day I sat down and, and counted. The definitive study on fur is the history of the Russian fur trade by Raymond Fisher. And it was basically the monograph that came out of his Berkeley dissertation in 1941. And I sat down and I counted at one point like all the sources that he used and it's messier, right, because there's overlays. You have like a local record and then a Tobolsk record, which is kind of in a, con a conglomeration. And then Milyukov thought that in 1681 they found something that might be, or, or 98, 1698, or 81, sorry. There might have been like almost the equivalent of a whole um, Russian revenue tally. So even this attempt at me counting is imperfect. But me counting, I pretty much figured that um, Fisher used about 5% of the records that would be required to make a 100% data set on fur trade. And it's the definitive study on fur. Pavlov in the 60s writes another one that um, is a little bit different, right? So to me, this was staggering, and it really took me a long time before I was even kind of willing to say that out loud, um, that we don't have as good of a sense as we might. Um, and one thing that Fisher himself writes about this, yes, I, I think at some measure, absolutely, fur is a driver, and they are going farther in order to find tribute payers. And one of the reasons is that it's easier to move across the river than through the bush, right? So this question, to what extent did they really deplete fur populations? I'm, people can answer this question better than I can, but one thing people have proposed is that they, um, you know, when a fur population goes inland, we'll just move farther up the river or down the river, and, and that's easier for the way we want to do things than going across land. And if I could, to just come back to this kind of question of how Russia treated the natives. There's this, from the 19th century historiographical tradition to say that Russia was somehow a more benevolent empire. It wasn't like Cortez. I'm not gonna weigh in on that entirely. Um, there's, you know, romantic lenses that might push us to see that sort of thing. Um, but I will say that in, in Siberia, the Russian state sometimes faced the situation in which native populations would just disappear, right? So there was brutality. There was this, you know, they would arrive to a place and they would keep hostages. And, and, and you know, that was cruel and, and threatening and, and there was violence. But there was also this tempering, I think, of how bad the Russian state could be because some of these people could just move and then the Russian state couldn't find them. I'll stop there. 
Steller has a lot to say about what happened <coughs> to the natives on Kamchatka and also in, in other places. He's very sympathetic and uh, he got into trouble and uh, I think, you know, the, the notion that the Tsar was far away and so some of the, the people who came to administer or to exploit or to collect taxes, some of them were pretty bad brutes. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, yes, I don't want, I'm not comfortable feeling like, I don't want to kind of be in the position of kind of defender of the benevolent view of Russian Empire. Um, and and I and I because I think that in Kamchatka is a particularly brutal example. And some people say there's something about Kamchatka that's more brutal. Is this you know? And then there's this brings in the kind of dark side of the Enlightenment crowd in terms of you know when. Um, at what point does a sense of cultural superiority afford um, a right to to be worse to people than you have in the past? But actually, I I don't I don't feel comfortable kind of getting into that sort of a conversation. Um, but the nature of the nature of Russian imperialism, I think it's fair, if it's fair to say it changes. I, um, that, yeah, it, I mean, it changes over time. And is this because Russians in the 17th century were nicer? I'd be more inclined to say Russians in the century, 17th century had a, had a realistic sense of the limits of what they could accomplish and that, that um, informed kind of the extent of their actions in some ways. Uh, I'm very interested in this idea that you're, in terms of for the continuity change, convergence, divergence. Um, and I guess the way, the way, <coughs> the question, so I'm, pe I'm teaching Peter the Great tomorrow. <laughs> so, and I usually, okay, Peter the Great wants to westernize, at least modernize. Uh, he sees Russia as needing to be sort of pulled like the, you know, forward. Are you arguing not the case then on that, that Peter's not really this modernizer? There's already this continuity of development um, in terms of trade and, and, and enriching life. And it, or is Peter just more interested just in state control? Or? Yes, I am arguing that. Peter is, um, is this <coughs> enchanting character, and he gets so much attention. And he even, from his you know, funeral eulogy, that you, what Fiafan Prokoprovich is saying, you know, we were in darkness and then Peter brought light. He is self-consciously telling that history. But there were thousands, thousands of foreign merchants in Siberia throughout the 17th century. This guy, um, who might be my next project, Nicholas Vitsen, for example, he is, um, he lives from 1641 to 1717. He's the grandson of a, of a Dutch corn merchant that's in Russia from like the time of troubles. Um, when so many of the foreign accounts that we have of Russia, they're, they're diplomats and merchants, and they're there because they're already trading with Russia. The British Navy is getting its hump, its hemp, its tar, that it's making its um, ropes and painting the bottom of its ship. It's getting it from Russia. Yarmo Katalan is the kind of polyglot historian who has written this great big book 
the expansion of um, Russia's foreign expansion. I cite it an awful lot in the book. I mean, he's the person that's done the, kind of the real work of political economy. He's much better on the West, because he knows all of those languages, than in the East. But he argues that in the 17th century, Russia is already integrated into the economy of Europe. Um, you've got thousands of merchants. They're trading tons. I, Jonathan Israel, you know, when I noticed this and I was like, whoa, um, thinks that maybe one-fifth of the silk that makes it into Europe is coming up the Volga through Russia, right? So we just, um, so Russia economically is integrated um, with so much of Europe. Peter kind of took credit for a lot of that um, that was already well underway. Alexei Mihailovich has <coughs> plays and a theater. There's, you know, West people, boyars are starting to dress in Western ways from the 1650s. We have the first portraits, um, two of whom are from of, of Russian merchants. So there's a little bit of that. Um, I mean, there is some of that already underway. Um, and, and Peter is, I mean, Peter is his own spin doctor. And he, how much kind of fluff and bluster is, is Peter and how much of it is substantive reform. I mean, he does make changes. I mean, what, um, I'm just, I just edited an article for this volume we're working on that the main case says where Peter's really an innovative is in labor conscription. And he puts people forcibly, forcibly to work like no one else has. And Azov, the Azov colony is just a training ground for St. Petersburg and the death toll there. So there's, there's real innovations to be had there. Maybe this person that hasn't asked her. <laughs> uh, of the merchant families that you uh, were studying in that area, did any of their descendants or did they move eastward and establish some of the uh, uh, settlements further east? Or And once they got established, was members of the family moving westward towards uh, uh, European Russia? What? Or did they stay there? This is a great question. Um, I have one family that sets up shop uh, from the Gostini Sotni that I don't follow that carefully. They set up shop in Kazan, which is, um, they set up shop in Kazan, and then there's a Gostini Sotni family that sets up shop in a couple of places in Siberia, including Tomsk. These, in my research, were the only concrete examples of um, privileged merchants actually kind of relocating. As far as the story westward, I'm not aware, but the, um, <coughs> the, the, the if you're the most privileged of the privileged, you wanted to be at court. There was a real advantage to being in Moscow, including that there were declarations that you had to be in Moscow, although some people skirted it to be near their salt works or iron works or factories that they also ran on the side. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not, they don't have a finger in those places. They would send, send agents there. And I would um, not infrequently encounter incidences of you know some nephew or agent is in Siberia for years at a time. Three, you know, three years that, that they're out there and, and they're staying. So they kind of have semi-permanent um, networks. They're there even if the head of the the head of the hierarchy isn't himself there. Did they marry people of a similar class, or how many would have married, let's say, native or, or, or some of the other peoples? The privileged merchants. 
are essentially creating marriage dynasties of, of the who's who's of, of the wealthiest people in Moscow, just like we see what we call royalty doing. Um, and you see the Gastini Sotny also making kind of strategic strategic matches with other other families. Um, with this is a lesser told story um, that the about kind of interaction with native women. So from 1633, I, I found a document of like, ship us 134 women, we don't have enough out here. Um, and the term Siberiak means, as you know, many of you may, may know, it's you know, one Russian parent and one native parent, and, and it's almost always the woman is the native, native parent. So there's a lot of interaction, but it's not something I've seen I'm, and that I can kind of trace, not least because when the woman, if a woman gets baptized, she gets a Russian name and then her identity disappears in some sense, which happens with some merchants as well. Yes, yes, and someone needs to, and there is a recent study of the Kabak. So the Kabak was sort of the Russian bar, and, and I, I would love to know the logic, logic behind this, but you could buy alcohol, it was a state monopoly, but you couldn't buy food in the Kabak, which is so different from now. Russians look at Americans that binge drink, and they're like, no, 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 you eat food when you drink. But, but the kind of Kabak tradition wasn't, you couldn't buy food in them, you could just buy alcohol, and it was the state alcohol, and um, I was, the last conversation I had with Paul Bushkovich, the historian at Yale, who wrote in 1980 the book The Merchants of Siberia, he, he's of the opinion that, you know, there's so much more to be done with the sale of alcohol. One of the privileges of Gusti was that they could um, brew their own alcohol, um, but yes, so there's, there's probably a lot more to be done. And you know, it was one of those things where, oh, should I follow that? Like, no, I just you know have to make choices. Life is about choices. <laughs> In 1739, Stella has a lot to say about how the their majesties are cheated out of a lot of their taxes by merchants who bring in liquor, brandy. Um, and the various ruses they use. And so uh, Stella makes the, the point that it would be good if this were no longer a monopoly. The casa doesn't get what the casa is supposed to be getting because <coughs> the merchant's brandy is, sold, is watered down and sold for less than the casa brandy, and so brandy stays in the casa, and not enough is going back to the, uh, what is the, the word, prikas, the prikas, Sibirsky prikas, and um, uh, Stella is very, um, uh, very critical of, of but it, he argues that actually the brandy trade and other trade ought to be um, no longer a monopoly because, and he turns right around and says, the merchants 
would not cheat their majesties. He just talks about all the, <laughs> you know, all the cheating that goes on. And then he says, if they were entrusted with the trade, they'd be honest and see to it that the casa gets its due. Very funny. Thank you. I have, oh. Maybe a, no. go right ahead. It's okay. Currency, uh, they, in Alaska, I know Russian American company scripts. Do they use the commodity as a currency or gold or silver? Or silver? And the, the, the idea of a bank, is that something that evolved within this merchant class? Were there banks in these communities? And, uh, but yeah, the whole currency, I'm just wondering how that might have played into it. As far as I know, well, I mean, what I've understood is that there's both currency and barter. The state wants to keep um, um, kind of silver and gold out of Siberia as much as possible. Silver, um, sorry, copper coins is more what they are trying to have as the currency of record. You see regulations about this. There is a lot of barter. And back, the, no, there is not a formal banking system. And I put this in the list of things, you know, if I'm, um, what are major differences? Financial institutions is a major, in, um, a major difference. But instead what you have is just an omnipresent system of what I talk about as microcredit. You know, everyone is lending money um, to someone at some point, it seems. Um, so there's, as a, you know, as a kind of, stopgap measure between a bank, but even that is a, a, the teleo teleological way of thinking about it. I'll stop there because I could ramble, but... No, it's okay. There, there are a lot of questions that is um, things to think about. Peter tries to get a bank going, um, and the philatives are actually, one of the philatives is on a commission about funding it, and he and his other merchants recommend not doing it. And this was actually one of those questions where it's time to, you know, like send the book to the press. And I and I wish I had a better answer, but I conjecture that they. Um, and so this is one of those, you know, Cold War historians saw this, and then this was a reason for them to say they were just ideologically backward. They were defective capitalists. They didn't understand how to how to be a good capitalist. But I conjecture that they had a good thing going with the China trade and didn't want to. Um, open up a whole lot of credit access to everyone else because the philatives have pretty, by the, at the end of the 17th century are pretty much nearly the only game in town the Russia-China trade. Yes, they're, they're around for a long time. They have a tremendous amount of staying power. So again, right under our eyes, a, an example of a family that, um, right under our own eyes, an example of a family that defies what they say, that Russian state was so awful that it just crushed anyone that might be powerful. You don't have merchant dynasty longevities. The Stroganovs appear in the very end of the 14th century when they contribute some ransom money to Vasily II in a civil war, and they are full on. Are, aren't they some of the conspirators in the um, execution of Rasputin in 1916? The, uh, or if they're not, 
they're they're in the game. I mean, in Catherineian Russia, they're still a big deal. They've got one of the nicest palaces right there on Nevsky Prospect that has sunk about three or four feet into the ground. So, um, and they actually, they never, they are called. They have a different title. They're never. Or it's a little controversial. <coughs> some people say they're never actually called a ghost, and I've never seen a document in which, a, a historical document in which they're called a ghost. They get this title, Imeniti Liuji. Um, so it just kind of um, um, like exalted citizen, exalted person. Um, and, and they have a tremendous staying power in Russian history. I mean, have we exhausted the. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for coming and for your interest. This has been really fun for me. Thank you so much. So if you want to sign, because we only have a few books, but um, if you want to sign, I'm sure you will. And people oh, yeah, can you purchase them downstairs. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, and then, can I get, just have that on my laptop? Oh, is that okay sure, if I save sure. it? Yes. Great. Thank you.